0: here we extend to you a very warm welcome thank you for choosing to worship with us on this day I want to mention uh, a couple things uh well just one thing in particular that was mentioned in the announcements um tailgating before the Campbell ball games um is is a wonderful time of interaction with one another and with others um I was thinking this week About the early church. We're going to start off here thinking about the early church in just a moment. You know what they did that was so attractive to the world? They loved Jesus and they loved each other. And when people asked them, they told them about Jesus. They didn't have a lot of outreach, events. They were careful in the ways that they shared the good news about Christ. But they lived such lives that people had to know that 's what Peter was talking about when he said, Be ready at all times when anyone asks you for the reason uh, about the reason for the hope that is within you. why do you live the way you do why do you go why do you go to the to the dump heaps where roman families Roman citizens have have put their little girl babies or or their Physically handicapped babies that they don't want. They just left them there to die. But you go and nurse them back to help. Why do you fast once a week? And and because you're fasting. You're saving that much money. And you give it to the poor. And enable them to eat. Why do you love each other so much? I mean I see something in your relationship with each other. That's quite attractive. Well it's. uh, It's Jesus. Look, I recognize some people look like they're having a lot of fun when they're tailgating, and it ain't about Jesus. It's about spirits, although it ain't the Holy Spirit, you know, that's that's giving them such a good time. But people know genuine life when they see it. So even if the home groups don't, uh, you know, if a home group doesn't come rushing, if if that's your kind of thing, see Gary and, and, and Debbie. Uh, they do a lot of work at this tailgating. I went in last night and immediately started eating and ate for a long time, so I wasn't much help. But I was there, you know, participating. But I'm sure they would appreciate uh, some more people there. And if it's the Lord just sort of moves your heart, jump in there. And students, please come by and get to know us. How do I I know you? I saw some of you last night at the ballgame, and I'm thinking... You know, I know that person, I can't remember the name. I don't remember names until people buy me a steak dinner. That's the that's the deal. <laughs> then I remember names. But if you come tailgate, that's a far better chance. And if you see me anywhere around campus, please say, hey, Pastor Brad, I'd like to, I'm so and so. I've been coming to Grace for four years and, you know, um, just would be nice to know you a little bit and. That's one of those times. If Chapel Hill's not playing, I'll try to be at Campbell. Carolina's not playing, I'll be at Campbell. Well, um, let's imagine this morning, talking about the first century, let's let's imagine that we are meeting in Rome in much smaller numbers, somewhere in the mid-60s, somewhere around 70. Extreme persecution has broken out against the church and Emperor Nero has put some of our own number to death. Now, every Sunday that we meet, every time we meet is special, but there is something really special this morning. The excitement is palpable. Our good brother John is bringing in a scroll that's been written by Mark. You know Mark. He was Peter's secretary, the Apostle Peter's secretary. I I could hardly sleep last night thinking about this scroll that's going to be read to us. It contains the story of Jesus' life. Nothing has ever been done like this before. I mean, this is the whole life of Jesus. I'm going to guess it's more than one scroll. I'm going to guess it's two or three or four scrolls. And his life and his ministry, his mission, his death and resurrection are going to be on this scroll. And everyone knows that Mark was connected with Peter in such a way that it's said that just before Peter was arrested and executed, crucified upside down, you know, Peter was, just before that, he looked at Mark's writings and he put his stamp of approval on them. I don't know about you, I, I, I not only want to hear This account. I need to hear this account of Jesus' life. I mean, I've staked everything on Jesus. My entire family is at risk because we've chosen to follow this Jesus. I want to hear the whole story and know if it's worth it. All of us here together have invested so much in the truth. You might say, this truth about Jesus, you might say that as far as we're concerned, everything depends on Jesus. Everything depends on Jesus. So if you were able to put yourself in that place, what is your primary emotion? If you're we're meeting together, just a small group, and somebody can break in on our meeting at any time, and we're all in big trouble, or perhaps someone tells about us, and next week, by next week, some of us would be possibly crucified and, 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 and covered in pitch before we're crucified, and then they set us on fire, and they line the streets to the Colosseum or to Nero's Palace, And they mock us and say, oh, well, I guess you got your wish. Light of the world. Thank you for lighting the path for us tonight. And if you're on that road to the Colosseum, they're on their way to see other brothers and sisters fed to the lions and the wild animals. By the way, not mentioning this anywhere, but just think about this group meeting together. And Mark tells us, you'll see it in a minute. That when Jesus was driven to the wilderness to be tempted, he was with the animals, and they're thinking, wow, yeah, I, I, there's this vivid imagery in their minds because some of their group have been torn to pieces by the animals. So, what's your primary emotion? Is it fear? Well, I'm sure there's some fear, but most of them have already made the decision. They know. The risk that they're taking by being there. I'm going to guess that the primary emotion on that morning is one of great excitement. To hear this cohesive account of Jesus' life, (coughs) crucifixion, and resurrection. I mean, wouldn't it be great if we could come to church on Sunday morning with that same kind of excitement? Can you imagine (coughs) if we did that? If we came anticipating to hear just like those people did. To hear the gospel of Mark. And it was the first one. Almost certainly was the first one. And some of those persecuted believers in Rome may well have been the first people to hear the good news about Jesus. In fact, let's just stop and pray right now. That God would meet with us in that, and would give us that excitement in our hearts to hear His words. Scott Chambley, would you pray? Amen. Well, our text this morning is Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. This is part 2. started this text last week, but let's stand as we read it again. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. And as much as possible, just think about hearing these words for the first time in the conditions that the people who heard them did so. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. Heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And as he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering him, this is the Word of the Lord, and you say, "Thanks be to God, you may be seated, thank you. <clears throat> the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ that's the way Mark begins his story of Jesus, telling his story of Jesus, and then he gets right down to business saying that Christianity is not a different religion it's not like this new thing on the scene, but it's connected to the people of God to the to to the God of the people of Israel. This has been prophesied all along. And now is the completion of the story that God began all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 after Adam and Eve fell. And He said, I will make provision so that you might be connected with Me. But Mark was writing primarily to a Gentile audience. There weren't many... Jewish believers left, especially in Rome. By the way, the book of Hebrews was probably, was written maybe a few years earlier than Mark, and it was written to those those believers in Rome who were recognizing that persecution was coming very, very soon. Probably 15 to 20 people heard the book of Hebrews, which is astounding to me. As I've said before, when we've been when we've gone through the book of Hebrews, that that such a small group of people heard such profound words. Well, now Mark is writing primarily to a Gentile audience and and, and essentially saying, look, the covenant that God had with Israel is extended to the Gentiles. And all who believe in Jesus, repent of their sins and and believe in Jesus. Are part of God's covenant family. John the Baptist's uh, responsibility was to point people to Jesus. He called men and women to repent of their sins so that they might be forgiven. Now, as I mentioned last week, uh, we can only understand Jesus' mention and all that's said in the Gospels when we, when we read the, 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 the apostles' teaching. And, and we recognize that Jesus, after his resurrection, 40 days, by the way, He spent with the apostles and very likely teaching them far more than we tend to think. We just sort of, the the accounts that are given to us in, in, in Jesus' interaction with the apostles after the resurrection, before the ascension, are just spotty here and there. But Acts 1 tells us that he spent 40 days teaching them about the kingdom. So, probably a great deal of time. No wonder, no wonder they were willing to go to the death. It's not like they, they saw Jesus one or two times and they, they said, did I just imagine that? Did we all just imagine that? Could we have wanted so badly to see that? No, he was with them 40 days teaching them about the kingdom. Peter's sermon at, at Acts indicates that that was the case. He wasn't in a trance just speaking as God sort of took over his body. He was reasoning from the scriptures, from the Old Testament, saying Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God that was promised to his people. By the time Mark writes his gospel, that it has come to Gentiles, or his account of Jesus' life. The gospel has come to Gentiles. And so he's writing primarily to them. So that's where, in the Apostles' teaching in the New Testament letters, that's where the full understanding of Jesus' mission and understanding of the gospel is appreciated. So when someone asks, what is required for me to be saved? The core of our answer, according to the New Testament, is repent of your sins and believe in Jesus' death as payment for your sins to repent means to acknowledge your sin in the way that God describes it as disobedience to him as an affront to his holiness as falling short of the mark that 's the literal um, the the literal definition of sin it's it 's missing the mark, but we cannot think of repentance as well, you know, I missed the bullseye, but hey, better like, look next time. I, I, you know, nobody's perfect. I, I'll, I'll do better next go-round. In reality, we only have one shot at the target. And we're doomed to miss before we even pick up the bow and arrow because it's been handed down to us. There's a defect in our genetics. We were born sinners and already incapable of pleasing God with our lives. We never had a chance because we inherited sin from Adam. And that's going to be an important part of this message today. We can acknowledge our sin, but unless something is done to permanently remove our sin, to deal with our sin, we're doomed. Everything depends on Jesus The baptism that John offered was different from the one that would, in just a few years, come after those who who profess faith in Christ. The result, though, was the same. Repent and be baptized, and your sins will be forgiven. For us, the message is, repent and believe, and you will be saved, though sometimes Scripture says, repent and be baptized for the remission of, Of your sins. Is baptism necessary for salvation? That's a very much debated. um, and, And there are people who believe that it is that would really surprise you. There are some groups that you would say, well, you know, I know what they believe. But there are other groups that believe that God's grace is extended to us through baptism. Is baptism necessary for salvation? I personally don't think so. But the New Testament knows absolutely nothing of an unbaptized believer. I mean, it's almost like James talks about good works. He says, you talk about your faith. Where are the good works to indicate that you have faith? You could almost say the same thing about baptism. Really? You're a follower of Christ? And you're not baptized? There's a disconnect. Um, By the way... In a little over a month, on October 20th, uh, we're going to be baptizing believers in our Sunday morning service. So please see me. If you've not been baptized, this is a very important step in your walk with Christ and your obedience to Him. So come to me and let's talk about it. I strongly recommend that you take this step of obedience to the Lord and so publicly declare your faith in Jesus. Talked about... In the last month or two, how in the early church, uh, they only baptized once a year, but they were preparing for that baptism through catechismal, catechismal classes. Did I say that right? I'm, I'm not liturgical, so I don't know. They were, they were preparing to, to answer those questions about their faith and belief in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But that baptism indicated their walk in faith with Christ and also their inclusion in the communion of saints. The means of salvation has always been the same. Believe the promises of God and that always requires repentance, which is, again, the confession of sin. It's a turning away from the sin. The object of one's faith was different before Jesus and after Jesus. Abraham believed the promises of God, the promise that he would have a child when it seemed impossible, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Hebrews tells us that those Old Testament saints were looking forward, but not in the way that they were thinking. They didn't think, you know, one day uh, uh, the Messiah is going to come and he's going to be crucified. Nobody figured that out. Nobody. Until after Jesus' resurrection in Pentecost. Pentecost. Then it began to make sense. But the object of their faith was the promises of God. The same is true for us. God promises us eternal life in Jesus. But repentance always precedes belief. And by the way, while it is true that repentance is a changing of the mind about sin and about our relationship with God, there's an element of repentance that says, I don't ever want to do that sin again. Now, it doesn't notice it's not, I never will commit that sin again. In fact, there was an, a heresy in the early church that believed once you're baptized, if you sin after that, no hope for you. <laughs> well, I'm done if that's the case. I'm going to guess that most of you will join me and that the only people that will be left will be the self-righteous ones who are worse off than the sinners over here, you know? But the repentance, the, 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 the attitude of repentance is, God, I don't ever want to do that again. Please help me. If we say if a, a, a repentance that, that says, well, nobody's perfect, is really no repentance at all. It's apparent that there was interest in John's message of repentance and baptism. There was, in fact, a great deal of response. People had... <clears throat> Came out to see John probably because of the cool clothes he wore and how he always ate in the best restaurants, you know, as long as they were serving grasshoppers, you know. Uh, hardly. Camel's hair, he, he may have been a camel camel, I don't know. If Gaylord gets a shave this week and some of you are wearing uh, clothes to be like John the Baptist, we'll recommend some facilities for you. <clears throat> I mean, that was hardly the reason that people were coming because John was so cool. He was so unusual that people came to see him. But they were obviously moved with his message when they got on the scene. They heard what he said and they were baptized. They repented and baptized. And John made it clear, I am not the show. I am not a show. I am not the show. There's one coming. Whose shoes I'm not even worthy to untie, his dusty feet. I'm not worthy to be a servant to untie those shoes and take them off and wash them. Salvation will be found in him. So it must have been confusing to John when Jesus came and said, I want to be baptized by you, I need to be baptized by you. I mean, John was a religious man, and it, it just wouldn't be right for him to baptize the Messiah. And that's who he understood Jesus to be. Now, where do you find in Mark's account that John was reluctant to baptize Jesus? You don't see it in this account. Um, one of the challenges of preaching through the gospel of Mark, you know it's the, the shortest of the, of the four gospels. And you know a lot of the stories that Mark tells, Matthew and Luke elaborate on those stories and sometimes quite significantly. I mean they tell us a good bit more. So what do you do when you come to those places where there's more information? Do you stop and you say, okay, well let's turn over to Matthew or let's turn over to Luke. We kind of miss the thrust of of Mark when we do that. The way that it was written. And so here's a compromise. Maybe what we'll do is just, I'll say... We know from other accounts that thus and such happen. And then just move on with the story like Mark did. Um, I, I can't speak for others who will preach in this series, but I think that's what we'll do. So here, in this case, uh, we would say know, we know from other accounts that, that John was reluctant to baptize Jesus, whom he considered to be the Messiah. But Jesus said it's fitting to do so for all righteousness. Why was to fulfill all righteousness? Why was Jesus baptized? We know he didn't need to repent. We know he didn't need to be cleansed from his sins. (laughs) For starters... This baptism marked the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And it also connected Jesus' ministry to John's ministry of repentance and kingdom. Jesus would preach the same thing. Repent. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It further identified Jesus with us, putting to rest any reasonable doubt about Jesus' humanity. He was 100% man, the importance of which we're going to discuss in a few moments. But his baptism, it's not so much really, that's not the primary point showing that Jesus is 100% man. But right here at the very beginning of his ministry, Mark is telling us that Jesus is 100% God as well. When Jesus came up out of the water, and by the way, this almost has to mean that Jesus came out from underneath the water. Almost has to be saying that. When he came up out of the water, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. In addition, a voice from heaven said, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. A holy and righteous God can only be pleased with one who is holy and righteous. And so, essentially, one who is also God. Not another God, but God. There's not an indication in any of these accounts that others heard this voice. Later, a voice is heard and people really don't make sense of it, but there's not an indication here that the others heard the voice, but the readers are intended to know that this is what happened. Jesus saw it. Readers at that time, when it, when it was first written, and, and us today, we're supposed to see, we're meant to see the Trinity in this text, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. When we dig a little deeper in Mark 1.11, we begin to see more evidence of Jesus' divinity, and we see the connection between the Old and New Testaments and how It all ties together, and and all the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus. You are my beloved son. The first part of Mark 1 11 reflects Psalm 2 7. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. By the way, this was a coronation psalm. They would sing this song, psalm, and song when the king was crowned. You are my beloved son. Today I have begotten you. So Mark is saying Jesus is that king that God promised from David, promised through the line of David. The second part of this verse, with you I am well pleased, alludes to Isaiah 42 1. Behold my servant who I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Has your soul ever delighted in someone? Yeah, that person I'm living with, it did back in the day. Well, I hope it still does today. That man or that woman, that child that's born to you, that friend who is dearer to you than a brother or a sister. God says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. Talking about the nation of Israel, even though they were very sinful at the time it was written. But also far greater, talking about Jesus. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. God had planned this all along. I'm never going to get over the mystery that God looks at me and he sees Jesus and therefore he loves me. I look in the mirror. Sometimes I'm disappointed. Sometimes I'm disgusted, frustrated. God looks at me and he sees Jesus and he's pleased. I'm not sure I understand why people have a hard time believing that. But that's because I've walked in light for a long time. I've understood that Jesus is my only hope. Everything depends on Jesus. If it depends on me, I'm doomed. It's odd, is it not, that people don't like like the idea that salvation is a gift freely given. They want to earn their salvation. Every other religion, and so many people who call themselves Christians... Or just trying to do their best so that God will say, you're okay. And a lot of religions, if you don't get it right this life, well, we'll send you back, you know, on a smaller scale. Or if you're making improvement on a in a little better place, and you get another shot at it. I mean, people... You might argue that people say, oh, look, it's a heavy burden to try to earn one's salvation. I agree with that, that people say that, but why do so few people choose to repent of their sins and, and receive the gift that God has given them through Jesus? Why do they refuse the gospel? We have a natural inclination To try to earn our salvation. Far better it is. To rest in Jesus. And find the father's approval. Toward. In us through Jesus. When Jesus heard these words of approval. Mark tells us that immediately. He was driven into the desert. There were wild animals there. Um, And Jesus faced. A tremendous temptation. Temptation often comes right after great blessings in our lives, does it not? Look, when things are going really well or really badly, be prepared for temptation. Sometimes significant temptation, temptations you haven't faced in years. Satan knows when to attack us. We know the severity of Jesus' temptation, again, from other accounts. And the Greek language seems to imply that Satan was testing Jesus repeatedly, constantly, continually through those 40 days. There's that 40 days again. We, we run into that all, all the time in Scripture. Right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he faced some of the greatest temptation that any man has ever faced. And since everything depends on Jesus and because his death will be meaningless if he fails this test. It's a good thing that Jesus is 100% God as well as 100% man. Let's think about this for just a minute. Some of you are going to want to talk about this after the service. If you do want to talk about it, please wait till after the service. Uh, The most conservative theologians almost universally agree that it was impossible for Jesus to fail. The theological term is the impeccability of Christ. And it states that while Jesus could be tempted because he was 100% man, he couldn't fail because he was 100% God. He could be tempted because of his divine nature, or his human nature, but he could not fail because of his divine nature. Now, I don't know what it is. Look, I, for years I fought against that. I said, that's just not, no, no, it just doesn't mean as much if Jesus couldn't fail. Can I ask you this question? Why? Why does it not mean as much? It's a wonderful truth that Jesus was God, that his death was meaningful, and that he couldn't sin. I mean, if you think about it, if Jesus could sin then, well, what's to say he Might not sin now. We know God as completely pure and holy and utterly unchangeable. And that is what gives us strength and courage. Jesus' divinity and his perfection made him a legitimate substitute to die in my place and for my sin. Having kept the law perfectly in the face of overwhelming temptation. 1 Corinthians 15, 45 tells us that Jesus is the last Adam. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now, Paul doesn't mean here that, that Adam was a physical human being while Jesus was only a spiritual being who inhabited a body or appeared to be human. In fact, a significant portion of the long chapter that is known as 1 Corinthians 15 is devoted to the argument that Jesus had a body, that he died, he was buried, and he was bodily resurrected. And if he was resurrected in spirit only, we have no hope. It all rides on this. Everything depends on Jesus being who we are told that he was in Scripture. Paul is making this point, this point in context, that Adam failed, but Jesus, 100 percent human and 100 percent divine, led by the Holy Spirit, got it right. He's the last Adam. We call him the second Adam a lot, but he, the technical term, he's the last Adam. Verse uh, 49 says, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Adam totally blew it. Jesus totally got it right. So, if everything depends on Jesus, praise God. He got it right. And that's good news for you. You're going to see why that matters in your spiritual growth in the briefest of moments. But let's bring closure to this teaching. A lot of teaching today. What's the application? Well, it's significant. It's not long, but it's significant. First, know this. Your eternal destiny is dependent on Jesus. If he fails in his Mission, You have no chance of standing clean before him. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If Jesus fails, we have no choice. If he succeeds, which he did, then our only hope is to stand in him. Are you standing before God, as a son of Adam, doing your best so that he'll think you're pretty good and let you in. You're certainly better than your neighbor. Or are you standing in the worthiness of the Son of God? Your eternal destiny is dependent upon Jesus. Also, your spiritual growth is dependent on you allowing Jesus the second Adam, to have the prominent place in your life. Adam lives in all of us. How many of you, in spite of your best efforts, in spite of your absolute, every fiber of your being rebels against this, and yet you were just like your father or your mother. I mean, you're just like them. Trace it back far enough, we all come from Adam. And he lives in all of us if we have placed our hope in forgiveness of our sin in Jesus, then Jesus lives in us as well. We've already talked about the importance, as we work our way through Mark, of gazing on Jesus. Spend time with Jesus. Listen to Him. Focus on Him. The more... We gaze at Jesus, the more we are going to look like Him. We're going to think like Him. We're going to trust like Him, live like Him. 2 Corinthians 3.18, write it down if you're taking notes. The more you look at Jesus, the more you will look like Jesus. The more time you spend in the Word, the more time you will take on the image of the Son of God. And people will look at you and say, wow, you're just like Jesus. Well, we're not just like Jesus. But what what we want is for people to see Jesus in us. And as we gaze at him, we will begin to live, he'll begin to live through us as we give him the reign of our lives because we will recognize it is far better for him to deal with the temptations that confront us Far better that He be the one to move our hearts and minds to heavenly things rather than earthly things. Far better that He will be the one to respond to those who are opposing us and in some cases just seek to make our lives miserable. Jesus is much better to live your life than Adam. And one of them is going to live your life. Adam is going to live through you. Or Jesus is going to live through you. Adam is selfish, insecure, arrogant, petty, snippy, lusty and lustful, deceptive and desperate, manipulative, smug. You fill in the blank. on and on and on. That's what Adam is. Jesus is none of these things. Far better that Jesus should be in charge of your spiritual growth, your sanctification, than you. That's easier to do when you fully absorb this last truth. Your joy, your satisfaction, your meaning in life is dependent on God's delight in you. Through Jesus. You are my beloved son. With you I'm well pleased. You know you might conclude that it's a good idea to stay close to Jesus. You know what it's like when. Somebody's in trouble. And his or her best friends just kind of move away. You know. Or somebody gets. The praise and. Our tendency is to move toward them. Well, move that way toward Jesus. Because the Father is pleased with Him. In fact, it might be a good idea for us to be so wrapped up in Jesus that we're inextricably linked with Him. When we're wrapped up in ourselves, we find no joy. No, no fulfillment. We Okay, well, of course, we do for... We do for a bit. You know, when you accomplish something, you feel really good about it. The Panthers beat the Buffalo Bills today. I'm going to be a happy man for a while. Until they play next week, you know. If you get a promotion, if you reach the pinnacle of everything you've dreamed about, how many people say, I got there and it just wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Well in Christ it's everything you thought it was going to be and more. When Jesus reigns in us we sense the father's pleasure toward us and we're all the more motivated to live for him. Even but if Jesus reigns in you this is very important. The father is pleased with you even when you're disappointed. With yourself, In fact, to be disappointed with yourself is in some sense to have believed in yourself. Don't believe in yourself. Believe in Jesus. The Father will discipline you just as a, a good father would do when you need it. But his pleasure is toward you because of Jesus. Not because Adam cleaned up good and behaved himself when he went to town. Adam, in fact, wants to serve the Lord. Wants to quote scripture. Wants to do everything. Satan is, look, Satan is a great imitator. And the flesh in us wants to prove that we're good Christians. But only if Jesus is the one doing the living is it going to be what it ought to be. And when Jesus is the center of our affection, we begin to feel some of that Trinitarian love. The love that the Father has for the Son and the Spirit and the love that they all have for one another. And and look, when I talk about feeling that love, I'm not meaning to be trite. Look at John 17. It's it's mind-blowing that Jesus wants to bring us into that kind of communion. I have no idea what it means and how it works out, but I know that this love is profound. And the greatest delight that you have ever had for anybody doesn't come close to the delight that the Father takes in you. Because of Jesus. So. Gaze. At Jesus. Sit at his feet. Listen to him. Let him become. The central focus. Of your life. Let's pray.
1: go out this week. I hope that you will remember what we've talked about today, and I'm excited about this uh, series that we're beginning about Mark and just really focusing on Jesus and in the way that Mark does, just really being excited about um, his ministry and what he means in our lives. Uh, Please remember to pray for the things that we uh, lifted up in in prayer today, especially our our college students that we minister to, but also to uh, other prayer requests listed in the bulletin. And let me send us out this week with a word from Isaiah, from chapter 33. O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in time of trouble. At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered, and your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers, as locusts leap, it is leapt upon. The Lord is exalted for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and he will be the stability of your times. Abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge, the fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Remember our hope and our treasure as you go out this week.